It is good to see you all again. I am Chris, and I like it when Robert goes out of town because we finally get to preach a little bit. Um, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, he, he and Aaron and Jude and Lois are in L.A. this week, and from what I understand from Twitter, he's on Twitter now, if you can believe it. Um, Robert's now on Twitter. He's twitting about going to Lakers games and all kinds of stuff, so I have no sympathy for him, um, but, but we're so glad that he gets a week away with his family and uh, to enjoy all that. Um, maybe you've been following along with us, but we are, in this, we are kind of in the home stretch of our series on Ecclesiastes. Um, we are rounding third base, and we are almost home. We'll have three, I believe, three more messages, I think. Um, to finish the book, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. it for, for me, it, it's, been a, it's been quite a journey. Um, it's been quite a difficult journey, um, walking through the, the conclusions that Solomon comes to about this life, and the quickness of it, and the enigma of it, and the, the, all of the pitfalls that have come to him, and that come to us as we try to find meaning in it. Um, we have, we've seen many things, and Solomon has taught us much about the futility of our um, efforts to understand all that life is about apart from God. And in this, in this section, chapter 7, um, he is coming to some conclusions about what he has been searching for. Um, so we're going to dive right in. I'm going to pray. We'll dive right in and, um, and pick up where Raymond left off last week. Lord, just as we've asked you already, we, we do need your help. We do not want to presume that we can, we can approach you without grace, approach you without the Holy Spirit teaching us. We ask that during this time you'd lead us and guide us, that the teacher of the church would come and be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, chapter 7, verse 19. Oh, before I begin, let me just, another little announcement. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been posting, here we go, uh, we've been posting online at redemptionhill.com, we've been posting the notes as well as the MP3s um, for your personal reflection. It's actually the, the reflection guides that all of the communities use throughout the week to go through the, to to go through the sermons and to process all that's going on in our hearts together. We've been posting them online for everyone to have. So usually about Monday or Tuesday, um, you will see those on the homepage at redemptionhill.com. So that will help you continue to reflect on what God is doing and, and teaching us through this great book of Ephesians. One which I'd never read really through, I don't think, before we did this series. I know that's a, a bad confession for a pastor, but I don't think I ever read the book completely through. Um, of course, I'd pick stuff out of it that I liked and didn't understand, but, you know, never read it through. So this, this has been quite, quite, um, quite helpful for me personally, and uh, here we go. So this is actually the first, I'm, I'm going to read the first and last verse of the section that we'll be studying today. This is verse 19. Solomon has been, has addressed this theme already, this, this idea of wisdom, his pursuit of meaning in life through the, 
through the limited, or unlimited actually, resources that he had to find wisdom, learning, knowledge, information. Um, So he has already taught us back in chapter 2 or 3 about what his conclusions about the power of wisdom or the lack of the power or the lack of power that wisdom has. Um, He says here, though, that wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than ten rulers are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then in verse 8-1, the next slide says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom, though, will make his face shine. So much so that the hardness of his face is changed. Hardness of his face is changed. So he's, he's showing us here that, that, that the, the benefit of wisdom. We've talked a lot about how it, how it doesn't completely explain what life is about. But yet he shows us here that, if we go back to the first slide, it says here that wisdom gives strength to the wise, wise man, and more than ten rulers were in a city. Solomon knows about this. Because you'll, you'll remember back in, back in Kings that Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. And he is raised on the knee of his father, King David. David is the guy who wrote the book of Psalms, most of it. So this is your dad, and this is who is teaching you. This is who is homeschooling you, as it were. I'm sure he had other teachers as well. But schooling you in the, in the ways of God. Solomon has a pedigree that none of us could even come close to. And so he starts out really well. And then God, as when, when it's time for him to take over the throne from his father David, Solomon starts out so incredibly well. You might remember the story. God wakes him up one night. This is God talking, okay? Wakes him up one night and asks him in a dream, okay? I know we would all love this to happen to us. He said, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. This is God talking, not someone else. This is God talking. Ask whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And Solomon does something that none of us would do. He doesn't ask for riches, doesn't ask for wealth, doesn't ask for honor, doesn't ask for anything but wisdom. He says, out of a, out of a heart of humility and unbelievable perspective, he says this. He says, I'm like a little child, and I do not know to, how to go in or out. I do not know how to lead your people. I need wisdom and understanding. And then it says, God was so impressed that he didn't ask about stuff for himself. He says, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you everything else you didn't ask for, which includes the riches, the honor, the wealth, etc., etc., etc. So Solomon begins with an incredible posture before God. And this wisdom, he, he sees it played out through his kingship, gives him incredible strength and honor, just as God promised. You might remember the story. As he's executing his divine judgment, not divine, but his divinely aided judgment, two women come to him one day. And they both had babies about the same time. And unfortunately, one of the women's child died in the middle of the night. Which, of course, she's destroyed by this, but she goes and takes the, the, the body of her dead child and switches it 
with the other mom. The child dies in the, in the middle of the night. So she wakes up with a child that's alive, and, but the other mom wakes up with a child that's dead. Of course, she, she is like, oh my gosh, but wait a minute, this is not my child. You have my child. She says, no, that's not my child. This is my child. Your, is, your, your child is the one who died in the middle of the night, not mine. And so they get an argument, and somehow this case gets before King Solomon. All right? He sits there and he says, okay, here's both sides. He says, this is what we'll do. Bring me a sword. Do you all remember this story? Sorry to be so graphic so early in the morning, but I, I really don't think he was meaning to harm the child. Um, brings a sword, says, all right, cut the child in two and give each of you half. Of course, the mom whose child this is says, stop, give her to the other woman. And obviously, Solomon says, that's the mom. Move on. Next case. So Solomon is in his incredible wisdom. And it actually gets him renown and, and a reputation around the world for being one of the most wisest people on the planet. <clears throat> so he knows that wisdom leads to strength, power, and prestige. So verse 20 it says, But yet, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's where we start to see some of the limitation of wisdom here. Wisdom ultimately cannot keep you and I from sinning against God. It will give us strength, it will give us power, it will give us renown, but it cannot keep us from sinning. Sin is not a lack of information. We do not continue in hurtful behavior toward ourselves, towards others, because we don't have enough information. Wisdom is powerless to keep us from doing the wrong thing. You can see this in how, in how often in, a, in like, let's say, a war on drugs, okay? For example, in the late 70s or 80s, just say no. This campaign that was, you know, I think it was Nancy Reagan, which none of y'all, half of y'all don't even know who that is. Um, but... Nancy Reagan started this campaign, just say no. Like, the problem with children is that they don't know what to do. They don't know that drugs are harmful, okay? They do know they're harmful. That's why they do them, okay? So no, no amount of information is going to save them. But yet we, we think that by our wisdom, by our research, by all the things that we investigate, that the problem with us is that we just don't know enough. Wisdom cannot keep us from sinning, though. Go to, go to verse 21. So then he continues to, to come to some other wise conclusions here. He says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Well, Solomon's actually learned something here. He, he warns us in, in, in this verse, Be careful before you start to deal with someone that has wronged you. Make sure that you are as aware of your own sin as you are of theirs. And he'll even take it a step further. He'll say, you need to be more aware of your own sin than you are of someone's sin who has sinned against you. Be careful. Be careful. How often do we um, forget that we have cursed others. We have sinned against others. 
that we've sinned against God, that we have, that we have in so many ways, this is, the way I, this is the way it works in my heart, I realize I, I've done so many more things wrong than this person has wronged me. But Jesus is so clear on this. I don't have time to go to any of the parables, but he who's been forgiven much loves much. And we realize that our, that our sin and our debt that we owe God is so much greater than any debt than anyone would ever owe us. So it is hypocritical to judge others, to think about others, to deal with others without keeping that in perspective of our own sins. So we need to give mercy, even though our servant, we hear our servant cursing you. So maybe some of you are thinking about your kids when, uh, <laughs> when we read this. I think I am. Um, they're cursing me. That's what's happening. I'm not cursing them. Um, well, they're only 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2, so they can't curse me too bad. But they're learning. Give them time. All right, verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? No matter how much scientific research we apply, real meaning still eludes us. And one of the reasons that Solomon is touching on here, we cannot know everything. This, this blows my mind, how arrogant we become when we discover something. We feel good about the fact that we have learned something about the human body or, by, or about nature, about science, about about anything, but we've only grown in relationship to what we know so far. We don't realize how little we have grown in relationship to all of the universe's possible knowledge that God happens to possess. Every discovery that we make of anything should absolutely humble us because we realize that we're the ones still discovering stuff. There is one that will never discover anything because he already knows everything. Yet we tend to get arrogant and puff up whenever we find a new fish that's been hanging around in the bottom of the, of the ocean that no one has ever seen before. You know, this, this boggles me. This, this keeps me up at night sometimes. I, I, I tend to think that at the bottom of the ocean where light has never shined, I'm talking about miles underneath the surface of the water, I still think there's animals down there that we have no conception of. There could be something down there so big and so crazy that it would like dwarf all of our imaginations and all of our horror movies. I mean, just think about that. I mean, we've never been down there. We don't know what's down there. And yet we get so fired up when we find out one of those fish that have those little angler things in front of them because, and they don't have eyes because they don't need them. I mean, there's just crazy stuff in there. Anyway, we shouldn't get arrogant when we discover stuff. We should be abased. See, we have no idea how far the rabbit hole goes when we think about scientific discovery, discovering things about the world, discovering things about us. Solomon is saying it goes on forever and forever and forever. And the more we know, the more we learn, the bigger the task gets. Now, time should teach us that we we do not know stuff as surely as we think. Right? Time should teach us, even without divine relation, even without Solomon, time teaches us that we do not know as well as we think. 
Look at some of these quotes from some pretty incredible people that time has proven to be foolish. I think there is in the world a market for maybe five computers. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM, 1943. Next one. Hey, we don't need you. You haven't gotten through college yet. This is what Atari said to Steve Jobs after his first attempt to get them interested in his personal computer. He founded Apple, by the way. All right, who on earth wants to hear actors talk? I don't need to say anything about that one. This, this is it, this is the last one. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on its way out. Decca Recording Company rejecting the Beatles. Time has shown us to be pretty foolish, hasn't it? We make statements that we should not so easily make. Go to verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Flip back to the first, the first verse there for a second. <clears throat> first of all, the point here is not, that, is not that women are trouble and men should run from them. Okay? In fact, I think the reality is the opposite. I think we're, we're the problem and y'all should run. Um, what he's saying here is that simply understanding wickedness and folly and that it's foolish to disobey, it's foolish to be in sin, it's not just, un, I mean, it's not, it's actually madness. It's not just part of our human condition that we get used to. It's actually madness when we sin. But to realize how bad that is and how stupid it is and how much madness it is, it doesn't help us escape. It doesn't help us to run down the negatives of what we do wrong. See, our souls are so desperate and our affections grab onto stuff, not just for, for a momentary pleasure, but our souls grab onto all kinds of stuff around us for our identity, for our worth, for our very reason that we exist. And the tentacles of our heart and our affections grab onto stuff so tightly that you, by, by you simply describing to me how, how wrong and how foolish and how mad it is to hold on to that thing cannot convince me to let go. By simply knowing how stupid sin is doesn't stop us from sinning, does it? What he's saying here is that I turn my heart to search and to see the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Now go to the next verse. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is its snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. It says, he who pleases God escapes her. See, it is only when our hearts perceive something greater than what we're holding on to can we ever let go. Ever. We can complain about, or we can throw sin under the bus, we can throw under the bus the things that we hold on to that we know we shouldn't be holding on to, but yet it will never cause us to let go. 
The only thing that causes us to let go is if we see something that is better, if our affections go after something that is more appealing. And Solomon is saying here, it's only having affection for God and wanting to please Him that allows us to escape from the sin that so easily besets us. So, Solomon's doing all right here, isn't he? But even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. So, let's, let's keep going. That was funny. No one laughed. <laughs> All right, verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find out the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Okay, very confusing text. Here's my best shot, all right? (laughs) He's not saying that there's only one righteous man and there's no righteous women, all right? I think what he's saying here, and I'm not alone in this, but while I can't figure out the big picture, while I can't figure out the big meaning in life, I am going to try to make some conclusions about some things I can't understand How about some things about men and some things about women? So I'm going to survey. I'm going to survey a 1,000 men, survey a 1,000 women. And I'm going to make as many conclusions about why they do what they do as I can. Um, And I think this is what he's saying is that, you know what? I could figure out what's wrong with one guy, me. But I couldn't figure out women at all. (laughs) Um. That may be what he's saying. But besides that, we're, we're not sure. Um, but the point here is that his, all of this effort, all this research, all of the marketing research that he's done, the surveys, doesn't teach him what he needs to know. It doesn't make, conclu- doesn't make succinct conclusions. Wisdom does not give us comprehensive knowledge about things. It doesn't help us understand. Fifteen. I'm actually skipping to, to, the, to, this is actually in chapter 8. Let me just read this for us, and it'll help us understand all that Solomon is saying here. I, this is chapter 8, verse 15. And I commended joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done under the earth, or done on earth, How neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is kind of his summary statement about what he's been about literally for these seven chapters He tried pleasure. He pursued pleasure with everything that he had, with unlimited resources. And he said, it is all vanity. He said, it is all a vapor and escaping from the hand. He has now applied his heart to wisdom, to understand, to try to to analyze and to do research and to figure out all that we do under the sun. And he's saying here, guess what? I cannot find anything really anything out about it. 
I can make some, I can make a few conclusions, but I am still missing the meaning of it all. If we go back to verse 29 in chapter 7, we do see that he has found out one thing. All right? he, really, he realizes that he has not found out what he was searching for. He does not find the meaning of life, but he has come to a conclusion, and it is this. This is chapter 7, verse 29. It says, see, so if you come up here in a second, verse 29, there we go, oh. keep going, here we go, see this alone I have found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the conclusion of all that Solomon has learned. God has made us upright, but we have sought out so many schemes. This is how it starts, Adam and Eve. We're going to go back to, to the beginning. This is where Ecclesiastes really begins You remember this. God told Adam and Eve to enjoy everything in the garden. He created them a perfect, peaceful existence. They were completely right with God. They were completely satisfied with the world that God had made for them. There was no sin. There was nothing to do but to obey God, to enjoy one another, to enjoy all of the food and all the things that God had provided for them. There was nothing that they lacked Yet there were these two trees in the middle of the garden. One represented life. It's called the tree of life. And the other tree represented the knowledge of the good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil. So we see here that that, that God has actually created Adam and Eve in his own image. And part of that being in his image is the ability to choose. And so, for as long as these two trees exist in the middle of the garden, in the middle of all of God's blessing in his presence, as long as they continue to not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but enjoy everything else that God has given them, they're showing how much they depend, and how much they trust, and how much they believe in this God who created them and has spoken to them. But we know it doesn't end there. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3 in Genesis. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate of it. See, in spite of all the goodness of God that they were experiencing, they were tempted by the serpent, by Lucifer, by the one who had already tried to usurp God's place and got jealous of the glory that God was receiving when he created the world. He's been cast down to earth by God because he rebelled against him. He, this being, this morning star, this created beautiful being, has now been cast down to earth and is now trying to get Eve to do the exact same thing. Scripture says at this point that their eyes were opened and they saw that apart from God, that they were naked and ashamed. They ran from God and from each other. Realize that this sin of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not the tree of evil. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
It's much bigger than just disobeying one of God's commands. This pursuit of wisdom is over and above God himself and is therefore an act of utmost rebellion and treason. See, in wanting knowledge, they're rejecting God himself as the ultimate reality and center of everything. They were no longer content with God at the center, and they wanted to be the center themselves. Sound familiar? For honest, we can identify with this. The reality, though, is that God made, God made us upright, as Solomon is saying, but we have sought out many schemes. We have to see here that it is God who created us, and we began upright and completely perfect with him. The, the other option is to, is to believe that we were created out of nothing and that we're evolving into something good. But the reality is that God created us and we started perfect with him. And we chose, we chose to stop being satisfied with who God, to we stop being satisfied, let me try that again. We decided to stop being satisfied with who God was and to eke out an existence on our own. We no longer wanted to depend upon him and his goodness. We wanted to find our own way. Just like it says in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. So this, this act is, is actually trying to overthrow the whole reason that God created us, to, to, to depend on him. But here's what we have to see. We're not evolving into something good. We were created perfect, and we chose, we chose to be something much less. Thinking that we were going to be wise, thinking that this was going to exalt us, thinking that this was going to make us most happy, we became absolutely something unlike God had wanted us to be. We became a different type of creature than God had, than God had intended. We have to see it this way because if we don't, we will see that everything that we do in wisdom that we'll see every attempt for us to reform our ways, to act better, to do better, to be better, we will see this as literally an attempt to work out a scheme to try to bring ourselves back to God. But guess what? We cannot do that. This started with God. We chose to be a different type of creature, and only God can rescue us. That means this, that any progress in our lives, any progress comes from this act we call repentance and faith. Martin Luther said this, all of life, it is the will of our master, Lord Jesus Christ, that a believer's life would be one of continual repentance. See, we make progress not by doing better, by changing our behavior, but, or becoming a better person. We can become progress by being rescued by God. Does that make sense? We're we're always being rescued. It never gets any better for us than that. We are being rescued. We never start rescuing ourselves. We never never start improving ourselves. All of life, all progress comes down to us repenting of our sin and trusting in God's rescue plan for us. But when we don't believe that, we work out many schemes. Let's look at some of these. We've already looked at the scheme of finding joy in something else besides God. For, for, for Adam and Eve, that was becoming wise. That was, you know what, I, I'm no longer going to trust in, in, God, what you say. I want to make decisions for myself. I know what's good for me. I know what's best. So I, so I, I want some knowledge. 
And I think that I'm going to be able to find satisfaction better on my own terms. The other way we do this is we scheme in our relationships. Our schemes to try to save ourselves, our schemes of trying to save ourselves, play out in our relationship probably more clearly than in anything else. Um, let's look at some of these. Um, let me know if you have ever thought this. Hit that next one. There you go. Anytime you want to. There you go. Um, do they really deserve forgiveness? Have you ever, has this thought ever flown through your brain and maybe landed there and made a nest? Do they really deserve forgiveness? This is us trying to figure stuff out. This is our attempt to save ourselves through wisdom. We know what God has asked us to do. We know what God has done for us in Christ. But yet, we still ask this question. Do they really deserve forgiveness? Should I really forgive them for what they did? I mean, okay, I understand God's forgiven me, but I don't think anybody's realized how bad what they did was to me. I don't think they realize. But look, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The really thing is that we will forgive someone, typically, once they have come to us and confessed their sin, once they've said they're sorry, once they've groveled, and once they've promised never to do it again. God doesn't treat us that way. What if he did? What if we had to make amends to God for him to forgive us? We would all be really bad off. Next one. If I forgive this person, they will just continue to get away with hurting others. We forget how God changes us. God does not change us by by showing us the consequences of what we do. He doesn't change us by telling us how bad what we do is. He changes us by showing us his kindness. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? People will be changed as God shows them kindness to them in the gospel. When we reserve that kindness, we're sitting in a place that God doesn't even sit. We're treating people worse than God treats us. Next one. What will they think of me? Thinking about a decision that you have to make or something that's going to happen at work or something maybe if you confess one of your struggles or weaknesses or you have to make a decision about what to do with one of your children or you are um, deciding where to live deciding what to buy deciding what toys to have what toys not to have Um, this is the fear of man for me personally this is public enemy number one for me The fear of man. I'm always continually thinking, even before I think about the impact on me or my family or God, my first thought is, wow, what will so-and-so think about me if I do this? Can you all think of maybe some, some times, maybe right now, you've got a decision weighing on you. Maybe there's something that you know you should do, something that you think is coming to you, and you are wrestling with what is clearly the right thing to do because of that. Because you actually fear someone else's opinion of you more than God. What does God say? What what does God's wisdom say to us? The Lord is my light. Guys, I've been leaning into this verse the last couple weeks. The Lord is my light 
and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Who shall I dread? Do you see the contrast of our attempts at wisdom but God's perfect wisdom revealed to us? Next one. Is obeying God really the best thing for me? I mean, let's be honest. Okay? We all know what we should do. But when it gets down to it, do I really believe that obeying God is the source of true joy? Do I really believe that, that, that apart from all of my wisdom and all my ways that I'm trying to work things out for my good, do I really believe that with, in light, that past all my excuses, past all of my reasons for why I need to do one thing or another, do I really believe that obedience to God do I really trust him enough? Do I really believe that obedience to God is a source of true joy? We need to ask ourselves that question. What are we believing or not believing about God when we make decisions? Jesus, this isn't Jesus talking. This is God again speaking from heaven at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is God speaking from heaven. Folks there at Jesus' baptism here, they actually heard God's voice audibly. It was like thunder. Could you imagine sitting there going, hmm. I mean, the rocks are shaking. You're picking yourself up off the ground. I wonder if, I, wonder if, I don't know. We'll probably think about this some more. Okay? This is God saying, listen to this guy. We're stubborn, aren't we? We're wise. In our own eyes. All right, last one on this list. I'm going to figure out how to be humble, save face, and still get what I want. (laughs) I'm going to figure out how to be humble, to save face, and still get what I want. I spent 10 years in marketing as an account manager. And I'll tell you something, I became really good at this. Whenever, it usually came up when when something went wrong for a project that we were working on, and it was our fault, or my fault, really. <laughs> my fault. I'd have to pick up the phone. I'd have to write an email to somehow be humble, save face, but still let the client think that it was someone else's fault and to still think that I'm the best thing since sliced bread. This is impossible to do when dealing with others. This made me a really good account manager. It made me a really bad dad, husband, friend when I employ this. Let's, let, let's see what God's wisdom says. For whoever would save his life shall lose it. But whoever shall lose his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will find it. When I talked before about all the silly things that these guys have said that have made so many conclusions that have cost them so much money, I just can't keep, I just can't quit thinking about that dude, the recording guy who said that the Beatles weren't worth signing. Think how much money, (laughs) think about the opportunity cost of that bad decision based on his wisdom at the moment. And we can laugh at Atari which is what I grew up on, which is, the Atari games are like real video games, by the way. 
Um, we can laugh about that stuff. It's one thing when we're making decisions about money and about lost opportunity. But it's one thing when we're saying these things about life. We're not just spending money. We're not just spending time. We're spending our most valuable resources, our life is potentially being spent wrongly. I guarantee you that if it's being done according to our wisdom, that it is not being lived correctly. And we will end up with loss. I was talking with a guy this week who um, has just become a Christian, and he is looking back over the last 37 years of his life, and he's really struggling with completely grabbing hold of new life in Christ, of completely turning his, turning his back to what, all that he has known and setting his face to trust and believe God. This is, what's, this is what's hanging him up. I realize that to do this, to really repent, that I have to write off the last 37 years of my life as meaningless. one thing for us to waste money. It's another thing for us to waste our lives. So, where do we go from here? How does God help us? We get so stuck in our thoughts. We get so stuck in our myopic perspective of what we think is right. And when we operate under the wisdom that is simply under the sun, we're absolutely foolish. Where do we go from here? We have to ask ourselves the question, who is God after all? We, def- we desperately need a change of perspective. We need a change of perspective. One of the quickest and most direct changes of perspective I could think of to help us is Job. <laughs> if there's anybody who needed to be comforted after losing everything that he owned, his family, his stuff, his health, he lost everything. If there was anybody who ever needed to be comforted by God, it was this guy. I mean, Satan himself is having a conversation about him, okay? We think we get tempted, and we think that we're, we're being, you know, somehow being attacked. <laughs> Let me, Satan is not having a conversation about you this morning, all right? He had a conversation with God about this guy, Job. This guy needs some help. Now, How does God respond to him after dialoguing directly with Job? He says this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely, based on your behavior, you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you? So how does God comfort him? Does God comfort him by making Job feel really good about himself? Is Job now comforted because he feels special? No. God comforts Job by making him feel infinitesimal, minuscule, Nothing. He comforts Job by showing him so clearly and so, so almost spitefully that I am all there is. 
I am really big, Job, and you are very, very small. And guess what? This dialogue doesn't even stop there. He keeps going. Can you make lightning happen, Job? Do you command the hawks to fly south for the winter? Do you tell the eagle where to nest? Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? Me being God. That you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Job, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Then I will acknowledge to you that that your own right hand can save you. This lays Job in the weeds. It should lay us in the weeds. This should show us so clearly that our perspective and our wisdom is foolish. So what do we do now? We need to do what Job did. Confess our sin and turn from our self-centeredness. Honestly, guys, it's worse than we think. Our wisdom pervades everything that we do. This is what Job said. He answered the Lord and said, I know now that you can do all things. (laughs) Way to go. You got it, okay? I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He gave Job perspective and instead of giving him a pat on the back, you know what he gave him? He gave him worship. He gave Job the gift of worship. Now, I know that many of you in this room are going through hard times, and I want so much to tell you and to pat you on the back and say, it's going to get better. I want so much to say, we can fix this. We can work that out. I can help you. We can, we can mitigate your losses. We can, we, can, we can increase your opportunities. We can make this better. But I can't. And I can't because God doesn't. God can help us most and comfort us the most by giving us a bigger picture of himself. See, every attempt at us to understand and to ask the question, why is this happening to me? I need to know why. I need to know why. I can't. I'm obs- I, I need to know why this is happening so I can move forward. Every attempt to answer the question why is a reach for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's not offering us knowledge of good and evil this morning. He's offering us himself. And that is the comfort that we receive when we need it most. We ask ourselves the question, why? But the real question is, who should I worship? See, sin at its base is not a behavioral problem. It's an issue of who we're going to worship. Sin is not a behavior that we can change. Sin is a heart set on something besides God. It is set on something that we ascribe worth to above and beyond who God is. That's what draws us away. That's what causes us to behave the way we do when it's wrong. We worship our way into sin and we can only worship our way out. So what can we do now? Trust in the foolishness of the cross. It's the only place for us to go. We've been reading this already this morning. 
I'm just going to read this, and then verse 30 and 31 will come up. Where is the one who is wise? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look at verse 30 up here. Therefore, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus had every opportunity, every opportunity to choose life and liberty apart from God when he lived on earth. Yet at every point of temptation, he rejected the wisdom of the age and found complete satisfaction and joy in his Father. He perfectly enjoyed him and perfectly pleased God the Father. Now, as we have seen, for us, on the other hand, it seems like at every possible chance we get, we don't find satisfaction in God. We put our dependence on other things and we repeat the sin of Adam and succumb to the arrogant self-deification process called our own wisdom. And we struggle to live a life independent of this great, good, and perfect God. So through no initiative or deserving of our own part, though, in the foolishness of the cross, God has chosen to impute the righteousness of Christ to us. All the obedience that Christ exhibited and did, he imputes to us. And what does he do with our sin and our unrighteousness and our worship of wrong things? He imputes all that to Jesus. So therefore, Paul can say here, Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ alone is our goodness. Christ alone is our wisdom. He alone is our sanctification. And he alone is our redemption. Remember Solomon's words. He has once again made us upright. in spite of all of our schemes. So how does God change us? He does all this for us. He shows it to us. And like Job, he causes us to ascribe ultimate and compelling worth to God instead. Let us peer more deeply into this good news that we might ascribe worth to the right person. Let me pray for us. We'll take a moment to reflect. God, I ask that you would settle our hearts and our minds right now. And God, that you would reveal yourself to us. God, that you would appear to us so great and so glorious and that we would realize that who we really are in you. God, make these words to us, not just words, but life. That Jesus is our wisdom. He is our righteousness, He is our sanctification, and He is our redemption. God, we need you to open our eyes, and we ask you to do that in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.